0: Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA-certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to fresh roasted coffee soon after moving to central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm your host, Brad Gray. I'm the Senior Pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania. Uh, Today, I am so blessed and encouraged and uh, privileged to introduce uh, a guest on the show. His name is Samuel D. James. Samuel is a writer, uh, blogger extraordinaire. He writes primarily at a website called letterinliturgy.com. He works for Crossway in the Christian publishing field. Uh, He writes a lot of other places too. And uh, I'm so blessed to have Sam on the show today. He is a guy that I've uh, been following and reading for uh, several years now. And I'm so uh, glad that I'm able to uh, just have a good sit down and talk um, about a number of different topics. uh, Talking about um, Christian publishing talking about some misconceptions about that, talking about what makes for some good writing, what makes for really uh, helpful writing even, and also the value of blogging. Uh, You might have found this podcast via my blog, and so I have sort of some skin in the game there in that topic, but I hope you will find this conversation enjoyable. We also talk about uh, the life of a pastor's kid and also how to, uh, or just the uh, cognitive dissonance as I put it uh, between what social media wants you uh, the type of life social media wants you to have and the type of life that the gospel is calling us to have Uh, this was just a really uh, great and uh, blessing uh, to have Sam on the show I'm so grateful for his friendship and for his connection and I hope you are blessed by this episode it was um, just enriching Uh, lots of really good insights Uh, Samuel is a really deep thinker uh, he's a really, uh, uh, really uh, resonant writer as well, and so I, I, I feel like you will really find this this conversation uh, affecting. And I pray that you are blessed and encouraged by it. So, without further ado, here's my interview, my conversation with Samuel James. Well, thanks for coming on the show to, uh, this evening, Samuel. It's really good to talk with you. It's uh, been sort of a long time coming, at least from my end. I've uh, been following you for quite a while now via online uh, mediums, but it's good to hear from you and good to chat with you for a little bit. How are you doing this evening?
1: Uh, thanks, Brad. It's it's great to be here. I'm I'm doing well, just like uh, most of us uh, uh, grinding out the blur of the week that happens with uh Uh, shutdowns and quarantine. But uh, otherwise, okay.
0: Good. Yes, uh, we are in the midst of these lockdowns. And uh, you are, you're in Illinois, correct?
1: Yeah, we are in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, which is about uh, 25 miles or so uh, west of Chicago. And uh, I I work at uh, Crossway, here in Wheaton, uh, as uh, an acquisitions editor in the uh, book division.
0: Oh, nice. Okay. And oh, how long have you been? Uh, have, how long have you been at Crossway?
1: Uh, it'll be three years in June.
0: Oh, that's fantastic! And uh, what kind of led you in that direction? Have you always? Is that kind of what you've always seen yourself as doing? Or,
1: uh, yeah, that's a great question. So um, I've had a little bit of a of a roundabout journey to the world of Christian publishing, uh, I went to a Christian uh, Bible college in Louisville, Kentucky. That's where I'm from. That's where my wife's from. And uh, after college, I um, weighed going directly to seminary, but decided to make money instead of spend money so that I could get married Um, and ended up getting a, a job at a at a mortgage broker, kind of networked into a marketing division there, and it was not a very good job. Um, There was some corporate kind of blowups that happened just a few months after I got there that kind of left me without a direct supervisor and without a clear uh, job description. And in that vacuum, uh, just to kind of stave off feelings of uh, listlessness, I uh, kind of reignited a what had been a dormant kind of love of blogging and writing. Mm. And so I, I started um, blogging on my own. I kind of tried to see what freelance opportunities were out there. And uh, that led me to a couple different people who were instrumental in my uh, meeting Uh, a a gentleman who uh, at the time was at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, uh, where uh, Dr. Russell Moore is still president. And so I ended up uh, taking a job working for Dr. Moore uh, in an editorial role uh, at his office, uh, working remotely from Louisville. And I was there for um, around about two years, just, just under two years. And it was just such a Phenomenal job and a phenomenal experience with so many great people. And while I was at that position, I uh, really kind of dove headfirst into editorial content slash research, big picture project management, that kind of thing. Um, and so from there there was a there was some events and some some conferences that uh led to uh, meetings with leadership at crossway and uh they were extremely kind and uh very um, v- very just patient with uh, a young married man who had just had his first child and um, and so we uh, talked and conversations eventually led to, uh, me kind of joining the acquisition staff at Crossway. And, uh, that's where we moved up, um, uh, like you said, three years ago this summer. So that's, it's kind of been a, it's been an interesting journey, but, uh, it's been full of, um, the Lord's sovereign um, blessing on my life and using so many kind and encouraging people to, uh, pave this road.
0: Hmm. Well, that's wonderful. And it's, 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 I, I too started, um, sort of my ministerial journey, so to speak, by working in the secular workforce and then kind of transitioning into ministry later on. And I too, uh, uh followed your same sort of path by, uh, eschewing a seminary right after undergrad. Um, I figured that that was, like you, the smarter financial decision. <laughs> um, even though I was, Uh, constantly being pushed into seminary right after undergrad, but that's a different story. Um, (laughs) um, But uh, so uh, you've been in the Christian publishing world for a while. Uh, What's, I don't know, this is, I don't know if this is a bad question or not, but what's something that's stood out to you in these last three years or like perhaps something that has changed in sort of your you know, preconceived notions about Christian publishing, or so, just some things that you've learned about—not just the industry, but what has taught you about your own faith as well—since uh, you've been in that in that sort of uh, field. It's a,
1: it's a great question, and with three years under the belt, almost there's there's way more to learn than there is to know at this point, <laughs> uh, which is a, which is a great thing. But um, my my general takeaway from the first three years is that the Christian publishing industry is a lot healthier and a lot stronger uh, than I would have initially assumed. Uh, mm. And I'm not necessarily at this point talking about how every publisher is publishing great stuff. Um, that's not really what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is there there really does seem to be a, uh, a strong readership for Christian books. And uh, that is that is something that I think I went into publishing with maybe some um, just intuitive um, biases that suggested that people weren't reading books. You know, there's there's uh, the internet has kind of destroyed our attention span so much, and there's not really any legitimate future in in uh, in Christian literature, and um, you know beyond the occasional. Rick Warren type, you know, just mega bestseller. Uh, You'd get, you'd get those every, every blue moon, but you know, far, far and few between. But I think, I think since going in, and this is, this was kind of even before I went into Crossway, but even when I was at the RLC, I started to realize just what a hunger there was among average ordinary Christians for, really strong book and um, uh, good content uh, book and otherwise uh, but the, the the Christian book publishing industry has has taken me su- by surprise in in the sense of how many people are very serious and very passionate about uh, reading and I I think maybe part of the preconceived bias I had came from growing up in a Particular slice of evangelical tradition where um, it, it it wasn't always like that. There was there was maybe a suspicion of intellectualism on the one end, uh, maybe a sense that um, reading a lot of books is something that um, you know experts do, but it's not something it's not something for ordinary Christians. There's a tendency to read the Bible in isolation in in the kind of traditions that I I grew up in. Uh, so I, I think I arrived at, in my adult career with um, maybe some some unfair assumptions about the Christian marketplace for books. And what's blown me away is just how uh, serious of a market that there is and how passionate readers can be for uh, gospel-centered, rich content and how diverse that audience can be. It's Another thing that's surprising, I think, in the Christian publishing world is you really can't predict what's going to um, resonate with readers. there's there There are some topics that you you can kind of intuitively know, you know this is going to do well just because there's there's a lot of cultural conversation or maybe it's a particularly evergreen topic. Um, but in general, um, it, there There can be biographies that do um, really 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 well that you weren 't expecting, or there can be uh, books about really fine points of theology or fine points of Christian history that really resonate with readers and so i th- i think I think it, it, most people would be surprised f- from the angle of where i 'm sitting at just how much um, thirst there is among evangelicals for, uh, this kind of content. It took me su- by surprise and I think it would take a lot of other people by surprise.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when you go into, well, you can't go into Lifeway anymore, but when you used to be able to go into life <laughs> <laughs> you, you would just be overwhelmed. I would say with a lot, with just the glut of what's being pushed out there by so many different publishers. Well, and to that end too, um, You know, you've you've been in it a little for a little while now. Um, How? I'll just say it this way: Everyone can consider themselves a writer uh, in in an age of social media and in an age of you know Squarespace and WordPress. Uh, What would you say makes someone stand out or? what what catches your eyes when you're when you're reading something or you're considering something for for a publication uh what's how does how does one kind of uh not make their mark but just how does someone kind of stand out in such of such a flood of of christian publishers and wannabe writers
1: yeah that's a great question uh probably the best place to start is to just talk about Crossway's own kind of theological commitments and our, our publishing commitments and talk about the non-negotiables and then, and then address kind of the, what makes people stand out. So Crossway uh, is a uh, reformed uh, evangelical uh, publisher with uh, theological commitments uh, in that broad stream of reformed evangelicalism. And, the first thing that we're looking for in any proposal, and this is true whether it's an academic proposal, a children's book, or uh, a Christian living uh, paperback, the f- the first thing we're looking for is a strong uh, understanding of the gospel, a strong communication of the biblical gospel, and a commitment to um, the the Bible's inspiration and authority in all areas of life. So that's that's what that's the primary. Um, Thing that we look for. It's it's not the it's not the only satisfactory criteria, uh, but it's it's kind of that first guardrail, so to speak. It's the first and most um, kind of impenetrable guardrail. And then, uh, but beyond that, um, what what I look for in that in that stream of writers that may fulfill that. And there's a lot of great writers that uh, Crossway. Publishes and that would publish and uh, there's a, there's so much strength in in uh, that kind of confessional evangelical stream, um, but the one thing that I look for is uh, an author who doesn't sound like every other author. Uh, there there is there is kind of the danger within the evangelical blogosphere and publishing world in general. For there to be such a strong dominant style in our tribe, where every kind of author is trying to sound like somebody else, and so you end up with a lot of proposals that just sound the same, from uh, word choice to syntax to you know everyone wants to do creation, fall, redemption, and then but there's not there's not that much there's not a lot of creative variety in how you style that. Everyone is just kind of thinking in very uh, template uh, forms. And what I tend to look for and what I tend to gravitate toward are authors who can flesh out these um, gospel truths, these uh, transcendent realities about life and about um, everything from relationships to culture with uh, a, a voice that uh, is unique. And it, it sounds like someone who has had skin in the game, not simply someone who is, uh, trying to mimic what they know has already been published so that they can be published. Hmm. Um, I I think, I think that is, I think that's something that a lot of younger writers, especially a trap that they can fall into is you want so much to be published. And so you think, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of contrive my voice and contrive my style so that it sounds like something else and you know sometimes you may get away with that but uh, from where i'm sitting uh, there there's just so much so much that sounds like everything else and it doesn't stand out so um th- there's such a high premium on a literary um a uh, highly Imaginative style of writing uh, that can resonate, and and you know a lot of uh, a lot of that is is probably due to a disproportionate number of writers that Crossway receives uh, who come directly out of seminary and higher ed. And so there's a style of writing that you learn in higher ed that you have to be able to do in order to you know fulfill the the requirements of your degree program. Um, but academic writing uh, belongs in the academy and pretty much nowhere else. Uh, it is it is, not, it is not an effective style of writing just about anywhere else outside of institutions of higher learning. Uh, and that, that takes a lot to communicate to, to authors that this particular – Template. This style, this voice is doesn't resonate with, with typical readers, and so that's that that's a big thing that i i look I look to. And another thing I look I look for is uh, authors who are conversant with uh, history, and, and not simply in a uh, not simply in a research paper kind of way. Like they can they can find quotes and they can cite them. Well, that's good. Um, But there's a difference between that and actually being conversant with historical voices in a way that you can integrate. Um, uh, Alan Jacobs, who is a writer that I just have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, as an intellectual and as an author, um, and he's got a a tremendous phrase. He calls it temporal bandwidth. And by temporal bandwidth, he means this capacity to – see things that are true in our time and connect them to what generations past have experienced and observed so much so that you're not constantly thinking that what you're seeing is utterly novel or that our generation is is completely unprecedented in its challenges and its questions. And so um, I, I love to see authors who are not simply throwing citations on the page, but are interacting with History and historical sources and historical writers in a way that you can obviously tell that they have a sense of look the uh, the, the great cloud of witnesses that we are surrounded by they're constantly speaking into our situation and we don 't have to uh, we don 't have to pretend that our uh, that our time and our our generation is is uh, completely alone or has is you know uh, traveling un charted territory in, in any way. So that's, those are, those are two things that come, come to mind uh in what I look for from authors.
0: Yeah. I think your comments about um finding or being comfortable and confident enough in your own kind of voice is something that me, as I consider myself a wannabe writer as well as just being okay with working that out and fleshing that out and <laughs> not, not trying to uh, force force my voice, just let it kind of come naturally. Cause I think that's something that you have to learn through. That's just one of those things you have to be able to uh, you uh, experience it in order to kind of find it, so to speak, which doesn't really make sense, but <laughs> um, you kind of do have to kind of just write in order to figure out where your voice is, your characteristic voice in your own writing. Well, it'll kind of come out naturally. I think over time, but I think like you said, um sometimes younger guys and myself included just don't want that they don't want to wait all that time to let that happen. <laughs> so they kind of force things to happen before they might perhaps should, uh granularly or organically I should say. Yeah yeah, um, I
1: think I think that's exactly right. And that is one of the benefits of blogging. Um yeah b- bl- blogging is not really about trying to get in the door so to speak or trying to build a platform mm-hmm. that's not that's not really the true value of blogging maybe it was 10 years ago uh, but there's there's just way too much content out there in order to, to to draw a straight line from from blogging to big platform the true value of blogging is what it is not what it does for you it's what it does to you um mm-hmm. Blogging allows you to uh, shape your own writing and and if if you do it long enough, you will start to see certain uh, patterns and certain – a voice will develop because you will naturally be attentive to certain things that are kind of traceable over a given amount of time and you're going to begin to see, Okay, wait a minute. I really, really look for – issues X, Y, and Z, or I'm really, really passionate about, you know, this type of thing. Um, And that's, that's a big deal as a writer is in, in developing your voice is simply developing what exactly it is that makes you tick. And what, what has the Lord put on your heart and your mind to observe and to talk about, uh, rather than just kind of looking at the whole wide range of issues and saying, well, you know, what can get me published or, you know, what's everyone else talking about, you know, the discipline of blogging and even and especially blogging, even when you're not sure if you have an audience is that eventually you are being shaped into a writer who has something to say and who knows what that something is.
0: Hmm. Hmm. I love that. I mean, I could talk about blogging all night long cause I I've been blogging for a little while and I would say only recently have I felt that sort of comfort level with, how I'm going to say certain things. And I can feel the tension that you spoke to regarding academic writing as opposed to just natural voice writing, because I'm when I write for seminary or whatever, I just feel this uh, it has to like be scraped out of me just because I don't like writing that way. <laughs> um, and it's just, it. I you can tell that it's not going to be as practical or shareable or readable. Not that I write for that, but it just, it just is naturally not as beneficial but, like you said, only in that context of higher higher learning, um, which is a good thing I would yeah, absolutely
1: say. <laughs> absolutely there's a there's a tremendous place for that for that type of research and that type of writing and um, a lot of the a lot of the ideas that you see in blogs and magazines and other kind of lay level uh, publishing that is downstream from what's being talked about in academic circles so it's it's very important, mm. but it's it's also important just to know which which circle you're in and which audience you're trying to speak to.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I have a question that popped in my head, but before that, uh, is there any other sort of like misconceptions perhaps you, you might be able to speak to that perhaps people, um, have when it comes to not just Christian publishing, but just well, yeah, the, the Christian publishing in general, like, is there any other misconception that you kind of want to like pop the balloon of? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, that's a, that's another great question. Um, I I would say one of my most, one of my most commonly written responses when I receive a proposal uh, is some variation of, uh, well, have you read this book about what you're wanting to write about? And uh, there a lot of people are convinced that the book that they are wanting to write has never been written. And that's one of the things we ask for uh, in proposals is just for a brief list of kind of comparative literature on this topic. And, and so that you know our publishing committee can get a sense of what else is out there. And you would be surprised how many times we ask for that kind of list and, we get responses that either list one book or no books, and they say, "As far as I know, this book nobody's talking about this and occasionally that might be true, uh, particularly if it 's like some sort of obscure topic or uh, some sort of you know uh, finite point of of theology uh, but in in the overwhelming amount of cases it is it, th- there is something about what you're trying to write about. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if that's a misconception as much as a, um, I guess the misconception is this, it, it, doesn't, detr- it doesn't detract from the value of, your, of what you're wanting to do if someone else is also talking about it. Um, you're, the, the, the thirst for kind of being the first one there and being totally unique is a very misleading desire. Um, it is, it's way better to have an awareness and, and be able to interact well with what other people are saying about your topic than to be, um, uh, kind of to, to, or to rather to position yourself as, as kind of totally alone. Um, so I th- that, that's, that's one misconception. Is that getting to the, is that getting to the gist of your question?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause, um, yeah, I, I've, I can sense like <laughs> you're you just wish that the person would do do a little bit more research on their book proposal. (laughs) So
1: sometimes, sometimes that's the problem. And I, I, and I think sometimes the problem is that people feel like, well, if I, you know, if I acknowledge that there's, that there's other writers doing this, then, then they're just going to say, well, you know, we, we don't, we don't need that book then, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, But really that's, that's not, that's not true. It's, it's not the scarcity of the, of the, of the topic or the scarcity of the content that makes it valuable. It's whether or not there's a, there's a truly insightful uh, angle on it. So, you know, there's, 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 there's there's never going to be enough books about the goodness of God. There's never going to be enough books about the love of Jesus. Um, uh, But as the Lord gifts Anyone as a writer, he grants a particular insight into something that makes it special and makes it unique um, but it doesn't make it uh solitary it doesn't mean that it's 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 totally um, uh, uh, something novel so that's kind of what i'm getting at there and it, it's it's a it's a desire that can pop up in a writer at any point the desire to be so unique and so out in front that you um you position yourself perhaps a little bit unwisely and, and a uh, independent of wise voices that are somewhere else.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, um, I want to jump back to blogging just a little bit, just cause <laughs> that I, I've been, I've been blogging off and on for since about 2013. And I would rightly say that like you kind of said, it's, 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 I like what you said, that the value of blogging isn't what it does for you, but what it does to you. I think that's really, really apt just because, well, coming at it from more of a pastoral ministry uh, standpoint, uh, I recommend, and not that I'm mentoring other young pastors because I'm a young pastor, but (laughs) amongst my peers, I would say that if you aren't blogging to try and start just because – I have found it to be uh, one of the most beneficial things I've ever done for my sermon preparation sort of side of things just because uh, it allows me to sort of find my voice sp- uh, when I preach, but also just how I think and how I put together an argument. And if you can do so in a thousand words, then you can have a concise sermon instead of a sermon that rambles for 55 minutes and doesn't really say anything. And uh, that's why I am, you know, wholeheartedly in your corner, <laughs> I guess I could say, when it comes to uh, blogging and the importance of it. So let me ask you this kind of twofold question, which is, um, how would you say, or what would you say uh, your, how would you define your voice so to speak when it comes to writing and how has that b- developed? You would say through the course of, you know, however many years you've been writing and putting stuff out there for, you know, your Twitter friends to see.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a tough question. I, I, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not really good about, talking about my, my style because I, um, I'm, I kind of live in a, I have a, I have a pretty, I have a pretty severe inferiority complex when it comes to this. I'll just, I'll just be totally honest. And, uh, it's, it's, it's really not, it's, it, it can get out of out of control and it's, you know, it's got spiritual roots at a you know, bottom, I'm sure. Um, but I, it's, it's one of those, like, you don't like the sound of your own voice type things. You know, you, you you're, you're kind of just, it makes you weird if, if, uh, if you start reflecting too, too closely on, on your own style, which, I, I, again, I think that's probably just a pride issue. But, um, but, but the, the best way I guess I could answer that question is to say that um, the, the writers and the publications that have really influenced me have been um, publications like First Things, uh, publications like World Magazine and um, uh, writers like Alan Jacobs, uh, C.S. Lewis is my man, kind of go-to historical writer. Um, I'm a big Lewis guy, and and so I have kind of I've I've drank deeply of uh, kind of culturally observant um, a, a, at the intersection of. Biblical truth and kind of experiential cultural analysis. Um, so that's kind of where I'm most comfortable as a writer. Uh, that's my that's my uh, preferred assignment, so to speak. Um, <laughs> and I, in in terms of how I've seen it develop over time, I think I think one thing that's been good for me. Uh, particularly in the last two to three years has been to um, to learn how to write about uh, timely or uh, somewhat tribal is the wrong word but but more kind of intramural uh, issues that that may not be widely. Uh, read about, but, but how to talk about these issues to an audience that doesn't have my pre-existing input of information. So one of the, one of the frequent th- mistakes that I uh, made earlier in my writing, and I'm sure I still make it even now, uh, was to talk about certain issues without defining my terms mm-hmm. or without yeah. explaining where. Uh, where I was getting this idea or explain what I was addressing or the context in into which this this person that I was responding to or this idea that I'm engaging where that comes from and so one of the one of the comments that I would periodically receive is um, hey you know I, I feel like you've got great great prose, but I didn't understand a word of this um, <laughs> and, and that's that's important it's important for a writer to hear that because, it is at least it has been easy for me to to slip into a mode where i'm writing to sound smart and i'm i'm writing to sound intelligent and unfortunately what happens many times is that the desire to sound intelligent and the desire to actually help people with your writing are opposed to each other um so the, the more the more kind of sophisticated urbane and uh, intellectual, you you can try to sound. Uh, it could be the less interested you are in helping the broadest number of people access your ideas, and that's a that's a spiritual issue because now you're not you're not stewarding the Lord's uh, gift that He's given to you uh, in a way that is beneficial to uh, to the body and, and glorifies glorifies Him. And that's been a, that's been an area where I've really had to grow in my writing, and I I, I think with with the help of, of editors and friends who've been able to uh, who've been able to, to read my stuff, one one great thing is having a wife who is not plugged into any of kind of these you know obscure social media Twitter conversations and is not reading issues of first things or Christianity today. uh, And and when she reads what I write, she's able to say, Hey, look, I I didn't understand this. Like you need to, you need to explain this because people are just going to stop reading here because they, they think you're talking to somebody else. Um, So that's, that's been something that I've, I've seen develop, I think better as I've gone on and, and, you know, practice and seeking out the advice of others um is helpful. And and that is, I'll 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 end the question with this. That is one of the risks of blogging is that if you if you get so sucked in to the practice of blogging that you become acclimated to not being edited, then that can lead you to uh, be constantly writing to yourself. And it's it's good in one sense to write to yourself, but in another sense you can easily write only to yourself. And then your writing really becomes either an attempt like I said to feel smart, which is what i 've struggled with, or it becomes uh you know just kind of this rote thing where you're just not even thinking about how this could help somebody so um so i have seen i've seen editors really editors and outside readers really help me in in growing uh, in growing in that area and i have much growth to do i'm sure
0: <laughs> well I can echo the same sentiments that um when you aren't accustomed with being edited at first it can sound uh you're like taking everything personally <laughs> right um, yeah. but it's super helpful I think there's I mean it sounds so rudimentary to say like the best thing for my writing has been an editor but it really <laughs> is uh because you know it's like when you see a certain thing from only your perspective, you don't really see the things that other people sees or how they read it. Perhaps that it sounds totally different in another person's mind. Uh, and so I think that's really beneficial because I, I felt the same sort of tensions, uh, writing for myself, uh, which I think, like you said, is very apt to do and it's very right to do that. Um, but also at the same time, you can kind of get in your own little echo chamber of your own blog, which can ultimately yeah. be unhelpful <laughs> to yes. everyone that you are actually intending to help. Um, yeah. If, if there's, if there's anything
1: that uh, the, the world needs less of it is echo chambers. And so yeah, one, yeah. what one more person just kind of lost in their own head and is, is, uh, is not, not going to help the situation at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, one of the um articles or like topics that you've written about, we kind of spoke a little bit about this before we jumped on here, was just um your experiences as a pastor's kid. Uh and that really resonates with me. Uh I'm a a a a, a pastor's kid myself, uh third generation pastor. Uh, My granddad and my dad were, or my dad is still pastoring. My granddad, he uh, passed away a few years ago, but he was a pastor for over 50 odd years. And um, so it's kind of in my blood. I like to say that Sunday school is in my DNA just because that's how I grew up. (laughs) It's not really a a question. Uh, But can you kind of just talk about your life as a PK and perhaps what some folks that aren't PKs don't kind of understand about that reality. There's like this symbiotic like club. I feel like whenever I meet a PK, cause we know what we've been through. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, my story is pretty unremarkable and uh, that's mostly because my, my dad who was a pastor, he's, he's not pastoring right now, but uh, he was a pastor for over 20 years, uh, all of my childhood. And then, all of my teens. Uh, my dad is the greatest man that I've ever known, and he is exactly who he portrays himself to be. Uh, in fact, he's even he's even more filled with integrity and loves the Lord more than he projects himself to be. Um, and I was raised in a very um, loving, uh, Christ-like, gentle, um, parenting environment, and I, I even even a little bit hesitant to to talk about that because I know that there are just so many people to who have been pastors' kids, and that's not been their experience, and so it can be a little bit. Um, uh, alienating for some people to to hear, you know, actually, my dad was, my dad was great. You know, I, I don't know why you have issues as a former PK. I, I'm, I'm doing great. Like, well, my, my experience was, was pretty, um, was, was pretty incredible. Um, so I don't really have, you know, any big stories to, to tell about overcoming anything as a PK. I, I think, I think my, I think my um, big journey has been um, seeing my dad um, struggle in ministry, and uh, ministry is hard. It's really hard, and if if the only angle of vision that you have is huge conferences and uh, mega church pastors and book deals and Twitter and everything like that, uh, you might think pastors are pastors have it really easy. Like they are, you know, they're just they're paid to they're paid to tell people what's what and to write articles and get paid to write books. And and this is the dream. Um but but I've I've been as you know because you're a pastor and I've I've seen the the intimate side of the things and and ministry is just extremely hard. It's it's very hard and it's and it's hard on a family. And uh, my my family uh, or my siblings and I we we shared uh in some lows uh of ministry and maybe I think my dad would say probably we shared in lows that we m- maybe would have been better off not sharing uh, at at our age and at that point in his in his ministry but um uh yeah ministry ministry's difficult and so um when I you know when I see people talk about how they're, you know, negative experiences with their pastor or with their church. You know, I I know that there's so much that I just don't have a frame of reference for in terms of in terms of ways that that can be that can be hurtful. But I also I always carry a little bit of sympathy in my heart for for a pastor and for his family because the uh, the, the the emotional pressures and uh, e- even if the family life is is just wonderful and so blessed of the Lord, like it was in my case. Um, you know, dad. Dad coming home. You know, not not sure whether his ministry has done anything in the twenty years that he's been a pastor. And and hearing him talk about that and and being extremely vulnerable about um, feeling like a failure in ministry was was very impactful for me. And um, um, what I, I think I wrote about this in the article um, about being a pastor's kid, but. Um, I think, I think one of the, one of the ways that my dad stood out to me in a way that I've heard from a lot of other PKs, uh, about their dads is my dad loved spending time with his kids. And, um, it was, I mean, it was everything from, you know, coaching a little baseball team to, um, going to the movies to, I mean, just, just having normal fun times, uh, whatever it was. And, uh, I have gotten to know quite a few people who were PKs whose dads, you know, were maybe trying to emulate Jonathan Edwards a little too much, and you know, <laughs> put in put in those double digit hours of study every day. And they, uh, you know, they they didn't necessarily have that relational connection. But by, my dad was a pastor. He uh, he loves the Lord still does. Loves Scripture. He you know preached. Uh, week in week out, we in the um, in the 20 years that I was a pastor's kid, um, the most time off that my dad ever took in a given year was two weeks, um, and and uh, so so and that two week vacation actually I, I can think about it right now and I think about it a lot because it was such a sweet family time. But uh, uh, yeah, my my dad uh, my dad made time even in all of his in all of his uh, busyness and and the demands of being a single elder. Uh, in a single elder church, um, he he made time for his kids, and and that meant a lot. Um, and uh, and you know, just to I won't go into all the details here, but part of my testimony is that I was actually in Bible college when I was saved. Uh, so I was I had enrolled in Bible college, and I had a completely unknown private dark uh, ad- life of addiction that that was totally hidden from people and eventually that completely blew up and uh, I just remember you know having to confess to, to family members things that I knew were shocking and were were very unsettling to them and my dad was just I, I I can still see my dad's like soft smile on his face when I was just pouring all this junk out and his smile was the smile of the father of the prodigal son who just wants to welcome his son home. And so that's 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 been my experience of pastoral ministry has been that model. And I know so many people have not had that model, but I just I think about being a pastor's kid and I, I can't really summon any emotion other than gratitude.
0: Hmm. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Uh I would say similar things, uh especially your comments regarding the uh difficulties of ministry just because it is, you know, broken people trying to help other broken people cope with their brokenness. Uh That's sort of my, you know, tried and true definition of ministry, because really that's what leads to the difficulty is just trying to have a broken person help other broken people. And um it's just really it's really um uh, it's hard to put into words sometimes for me to when I reflect on uh, being a pastor's kid, I guess I still am a PK in some senses, but, um, and i now, I, it, what strikes struck me a lot when I, I think I'm referencing the same article you're talking about, but when I was reading it, it just struck me, um, because it never really struck me before when I was like in like lay youth ministry positions. But now that I'm in a senior pastorate, uh, and I'm holding that office, so to speak, um, it just struck me that my kids are PKs and I don't know why that that didn't strike me until just then, but it was just like how I'm raising them and how I'm, how am I ministering to them uh, right now will really affect them later on. And like the smile that you received from your dad uh, and that level of grace and uh, just understanding um, and not, you know, Coercion or judgment or you know excoriation in that moment, uh, but that type of parenting, as opposed to pastoring, is what I want to strive for uh, in my own heart. Just because I I know the difficulties of being a PK, and so um, that's that I don't, it just really struck a chord with me too. Uh, take an honest look at, you know, how am I, how am I in that role now as I'm, as I'm raising my own little PKs? (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's such a good, such a good way to look at it. And, um, and even though I'm not a pastor and and, uh, don't foresee that ever becoming a reality, um, you know, my, my kids are, are the the children of somebody who is in very public Christian uh, spaces and so it's 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 a similar. In fact, I you know I, to think about this really for the first time now that I'm talking to you. I I don't know if I've thought enough about what it means for my kids to, even though they're not PKs, to be children of of people who have uh, something of a public uh, voice in talking about Christian issues. So um, yeah, and I and I, I do th- I do think it's healthy and i think i saw this modeled in my dad and i've i've seen it modeled in other P, pk's dads and i've i've seen it not modeled as well um it's healthy to um to to understand that parenting is a calling that overlaps with but does not swallow up pastoral ministry so um if if you fail to see the distinctions in ministry and parenting uh, sometimes you will see your parenting as um, an extension of your identity as a pastor, and that leads to all sorts of uh, the, you know little little compromises or on the other on the other side just being really strict and, uh, you know, wanting to kind of always keep your kids in line so that you're trying to keep your, your reputation or identity as a, as a, uh, as a good pastor intact. <laughs> um, and it, you know, and it, 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 there, there is a, there's a little bit of a, uh, of a complex dynamic because the Bible does say that one of the qualifications of an elder is that he, he keeps his home submissive, you know, his, um, his home is in good order. Um, so there is an element, uh, of, of the, the, the parenting speaking to the pastoral ministry, but, but for some, for some, the lines have blurred way too much and it, it leads to kids who are, it leads to kids who feel, I think by the time they become adults, they feel like more, they, they were, they were kind of like props or hurdles for their dad to kind of overcome and the, on the road to ministry success rather than um, they were precious to him. So that's, that's an important thing I think for, uh, for, for, for PKs
0: and for, and for pastors to think about. Yeah. Well, it, it, on that note, like I've said a couple, several times in you know various contexts, just that I, I think the most dangerous church attender is the Christian kid who's been there his whole life. Um, and having that sense of, or having a, a parent who understands that, you know, especially as a PK, um, you know that they're they're a parent first before they're a pastor that's something that's really struck me mm. um in, in the aftermath of not just reading your 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 piece but just in my own developing uh, as i'm learning how to be a parent <laughs> and learning how yeah. to be a pastor as well at the same time just as those things are kind of coalescing for me it's understanding that my identity is not A pastor, even though that's my calling, Um, and so uh, keeping things in a proper order, I think, like with anything else, it's it it is so uh, important to understand, especially as someone in ministry, whether it is pastoral ministry or, like in your situation, public ministry. Understanding that, you know, uh, your parenting comes first as opposed to uh, whatever public platform that you have. Yeah. Uh, for me, that's I think will probably be like a, an ongoing learning process or probably for anyone. But um, I think that's so important to have. And I think that your dad, rightly, as you said, kind of understood that in your own little testimony there, just that, (laughs) um, regardless of how you turned out, uh, his position as a Christian wasn't tied to the, you know, the, uh, however you turned out, if I can say that right. Yep.
1: (laughs) Yep. No, yeah. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And, um, yeah, I I think, I think, I think knowing, and and this is not, this is true for all of us, not just pastors, but knowing, knowing our identity, knowing what truly gives us worth and what is simply something that we do um, Hmm, is is a huge distinction that we, that we need to think about a lot.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, it kind of switching gears a little bit. uh, I wanted to talk about this Uh, Next topic, just a little bit, just because if anyone were to go on your blog, um, letterandliturgy.com, I think it's a dot com. Um, uh, If they go on there, they will likely be find a common through line, uh, at least in my case. I I found that as I was as I've been following you a little bit, which is uh, you have a lot to say about social media, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is apt since we are the quote information age. and I'll just tell you my own social media journey, uh, if I can say that. Sure. That sounds really weird, but um <laughs> it has been sort of tumultuous, you know, being on Twitter and off Twitter and all the different other places, uh being off and on at different times in my life. But there's just this I, I don't know, I just describe it as this really palpable like cognitive dissonance between the life we're called to live in the gospel and the life that social media wants us to have. Mm. Um, And I think that you point that out in one of your pieces, which you you don't have to like talk through, but it just hits me is that I think it was more of a eulogy for, I think your grandmother, which was the beauty of a little life. Um, That idea has struck with uh, strikes me greatly just because uh, in a similar sort of vein, um i had the same i would call it a moment of catharsis when my grandfather who was a pastor uh passed away a couple of years ago and the idea of that little life that he lived but yet it was loud in terms of faithfulness um that really just it, it it is almost antithetical uh to what social media wants us to have i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but i just i there's uh, it's just really uh, in my face, I guess, a lot lately, just with uh, what social media is selling as opposed to what the gospel is trying to uh, tell us how to live, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's a great observation. And uh, I think that that post came from just a realization that I had thinking about my grandmother um, and thinking about the conversations that I was having about her uh, shortly after her passing um, you know, she, she lived in the same town almost her entire life, which was like 90, 90, 90 or 91 years. Uh, she, uh, she, she wasn't, she, she, she contributed, she contributed almost nothing to, um, kind of the world of f- ideas, you know, so to speak. Um, she, she just, she worked at, uh. Uh, General Electric, and she um, uh, for forty years, and then you know took a pension, and and she raised kids, including my dad and and his two brothers. Um, uh, so so her life her life was was very little, and um, there there's there's something just innately I think in us that fears obscurity. And hmm. uh, the uh, the English poet Thomas Gray, who wrote. Uh, you know a couple hundred years ago uh has one of the great poems in the english language it's called elegy in a country churchyard and uh this poem uh talks about how the author goes to uh a churchyard which is a cemetery um, and he 's just thinking about the um the the people and the names that he sees represented in this in this cemetery and whether all of these lives amount to anything and because you know they're they're they 're gone like he you know most of these people he he never he never knew they were in the ground long before he ever went to this churchyard and so like how, surrounded by so much obscurity so much named obscurity. Uh, what does this all mean? And, and it's, a, it's a very uplifting poem about the, the value of lives that the world does not take notice of. And so that, that was kind of circulating in my brain when I wrote that piece. And I think a fear of obscurity is um, pretty dangerous spiritually. Um, because, uh, especially in an internet age, um, it's, it's unusually easy in our time to try to address that fear. Um, for, for most of human history, you were just going to be obscure and there was not much you could do about it. Um, you know, you, e- even if you ran from, ran away from home and, you know, tried to do whatever to make a name for yourself, you know, the, the odds that anybody beyond a 10-mile radius was even going to hear about you was almost infinitesimally small. And that, that was just kind of the world as it existed for most of human history, for most of Western history. And then, but in the past, you know, 100 years or so, and in the age of the internet especially, uh, the world, has, the world has, uh, has shrank. And it's it's easier than it ever has been to try to make a name for yourself. And I, I I'm just amazed by the amount of, people who are considered YouTube celebrities. I didn't even know this existed until a couple of years ago. And my wife was telling me, Oh, this person's, you know, a famous YouTuber. I'm like, they're famous YouTubers. Like anybody can make YouTube, you know? Um, <laughs> and it's it's just a sign of how even the definition of celebrity has changed and, and what, what has to happen for a person to be considered famous. So anyway, um, the desire to, the desire to escape obscurity, I think is spiritually dangerous because uh, a lot of the times, we will try to escape obscurity by ignoring the people and the places and the responsibilities that the Lord has actually put right next to us, and we're we're, we're trying to think of escaping um, the life that we're given and be, becoming uh, notable uh, amongst people that we're we're probably never going to to meet. And that's that's it varies from person to person a little bit, but I think that's a very human temptation. And there is even a sense. In which this this uh this sin this this kind of deceitful desire can be Christianized uh, with language about living radically and uh, living sold out for the gospel and and even even that language can kind of veil what is essentially a uh, a very worldly ambition to to you know grow go go big for Christ, but really the words, like if it was printed on a t-shirt, the words go big would be huge. And the words for Christ would be kind of small. Um, you know, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's really about going big. It's really about like doing something and, and language about like you know, radical and, um, you know, all that kind of language. It's, there's a sense in which that's, that's good. And we need to, we need to, we need to always fight against apathy and indifference, but there's also another sense in which, we need to be uh, we need to be loving the people that we are um, just around that the people that the Lord has given us and the place that the Lord has put us because all of that, those people those these places, these responsibilities, they all come from the hand of a sovereign God who's giving them to us as part of his um, calling to us and so that comes back to the parable of the talents and you know what are you doing with with our, what are you doing with the little that the lord has given you that, that if you are faithful the lord promises to turn it into much and so are we trying to are we trying to escape that call for faithfulness somewhere else so yeah that's that's kind of where that piece was going a little bit and obviously i'm i'm very thankful for my grandmother's little life because her her little life uh became uh, a big life to my father and his brothers and uh his, my that that little life of my father became a big life to me. So uh we 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 uh we we place we place a way too high premium on um reputational values and way too low a premium yeah. on generational values.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love I love those thoughts and especially your comments about, you know, a quote, YouTube celebrity. And like you said, what even is a celebrity anymore is come. It's like, I-, I like to say like the, the ubiquity of celebrity has been kind of uh exacerbated with another phrase. I like to say called the amphetamine of notoriety. And I would say that that's what we, or at least my generation or your, our generation has kind of been drugged up on, which is everyone can be famous. And so that means no one is, um, essentially. (laughs) And, and I see this theme, maybe I'm just looking for it in too many places, but I just see this theme. So in so many different outlets, uh, like in, in movies and shows and, and so many different mediums, um, this idea of, of living large, but also contrasted with living small. Like uh, I'll just, um, I'll just, one of my favorite movies is um, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. And if you ever want to see, I think people who live small in your face, I think that's what that movie reminds you of is, you know, nameless kind of almost faceless people on a beach fighting for survival. And yet these same gentlemen are, the ones who sort of uh, changed the tide, so to speak, in the first or the second world war. And we don't know their names. We hardly even remember them now. And we have to have Christopher Nolan remind us of them. And yet uh, they are so important uh, to us, even though we don't even recognize it. And that sort of that sort of little life is what um, resonates with me, uh, similarly to your, to your, um, to your grandmother. My grandfather was a pastor of, of, of a church for 50 odd. He was in ministry for 50 odd years. And, you know, he pastored two churches at one time way back in the day. Um, and all that kind of stuff. He did a lot of, quote, exploits for Jesus. And yet there's no building named after him. There's no statue that you can go to and be like, here's how we remember him. And, uh that to me is so um it's almost impossible to live that way and still try and have an online platform i mm. think which is where that kind of dissonance between what the gospel tells us to live like which is what you said live with those who are right in front of you in the f- in the flesh and blood which i think is so important and i i pray and i think you're seeing that in some in some outlets just you know, the allure of social media is just wearing really thin. And, um, I pray that that happens more often, but anyway, all that to say is that, that type of, not just that type of writing, but that type of, um, in, I think that type of writing is important and it resonates with me too, just because, uh, it's so that, that fight is palpable, that that Mm -hmm. fight against notoriety, at least for me, it is. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, And social media complicates the dynamic quite a bit. Um, yeah, precisely because there's, um, there's, there's a desire to flee. I, I cannot remember for the life of me who, who I read that set, put it this way, but it wasn't me. So whoever you are, if you're listening to this, uh, please feel credit, but I am forget your name. Uh, but I, I recently read somebody put it like this, is that the great temptation of social media is that we flee to it uh, in order to receive the affirmation and the, re- the sense of respect that we don't feel offline. Uh, and that, that really resonated with me because, uh, you know, your, your, your normal day job, your, your responsibilities as a husband or as a father, as a church member, uh, in the overwhelming majority of those cases, you're surrounded by people who don't necessarily admire or are impressed by you. Like you're just, you're, you're just a normal part of the team or you're just, you know, you're the husband and, 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 you know, my wife, my wife loves me and she's, she's proud of me. Uh, but she's not, she's not starstruck by me. She's not like constantly <laughs> thinking like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, uh, I would love to hear another interview of Samuel, <laughs> you know, <I> like, as <laughs> like, you know, there, there's a, there's a sense in which, in which real life is far less flattering to you than mm. social media can be where, where you can kind of you can manipulate things to where you, you become someone who gets a lot of likes and a lot of retweets and a lot of shares. And you can kind of, you can kind of suck the, the self-esteem out of that as much as you can. And then that, becomes, that, that just becomes a, a very intoxicating uh, way to cope with you know, the frustrations of normal life. But it's the frustrations of normal life that the Lord intends for us to most, uh, most prioritize and, and try to be most faithful in.
0: Hmm, indeed. Um, well, just, uh, I, I love, <laughs> I love talking about the theology of that, but, um, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit before we close, only because we're in a moment which most people likely know, which is very unprecedented in terms of its, uh, ministerial but also cultural resonance, which is this novel coronavirus. Uh, we're in the middle of, lockdowns in our various contexts for it um one serious question and then i can get to more of a lighthearted one which is what is something that i don't know is perhaps resonating with you or you're learning during this weird season and kind of like dealing with the weirdness of it if if i can say it that way mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah that's a great question and uh yeah, I think uh I was talking about this with some colleagues actually earlier today and um I I I think I think this this whole thing which is so hard on so many and I should say from the outset that um you know our family our family is doing well we are inconvenienced we have cabin fever but uh income wise job wise health wise you know we are we're doing really well we're very We're very blessed and very grateful. And so for people who have lost a loved one to this virus or who have a loved one in the ICU or have just lost their job or may lose their job, uh, you know, this that perspective is going to be is going to just go so much deeper into um, into into trust of the Lord and and leaning on him. Um, But I think from my particular vantage point, I'm I find myself thinking a lot about how is the Lord going to turn this for good? Uh, how 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 is this going to be turned for good? And I think one of the ways it's going to be turned from good is actually what we were just talking about. Uh, I I, th- I think I think leading up to this virus, um, there were just so many in our world, and I'm including myself, uh, who could just doze off into the into the ether of of online news, information, platform building, um, and then just you know maybe just even entertainment and busyness. And there's so many things to occupy our attention that we, we, don't, we, can, we can easily convince ourselves that we're being productive, that we're, um, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We are flourishing when in fact we're, we're languishing. Um, and and it, we're just kind of papering over that spiritual condition with more stuff to do and more, more, uh, more places to be. And I think one of, one of the ways in which the Lord is going gonna, is gonna to use this us for good in the life of his church and the life of many people is going to be to just awaken us to have to we're given so much solitude right now and so much opportunity for reflection that we, we, you know, we'll try to drown out with Netflix, but don't, but even that gets stale, you know, you can't, you can't do it all the time. And so we're just going to have to confront the ways in which spiritually we are, we're just in need of, of repentance and renewal. And, uh, and we're going to, we're going to see kind of digital trinkets Uh, As smaller, some people are concerned that this is going to lead to greater addiction to to digital technologies, and I I think that is a danger. But I actually see um, I see something different happening, especially among Christians, and that is we're going to become disenchanted with this technology because our eyes are just falling out of their sockets because we're on Zoom, you know, four hours a day, (laughs) and we're about to go nuts and you know we're having to deal with kids who are missing birthday parties and sporting events and having to miss their friends at school and all of these kind of all of these kind of comforts are being taken away and what we're what we're going to be left with in the end is um like what we were saying it's it's gonna be the life that the Lord has given us and the people that he's put most closely uh next to us and so i i think I think there's going to be a recovery of of that, and that's what I'm kind of that's what I'm praying about in my own life, and uh, and prayerfully expecting the Lord to to lead us in the next uh, several months or however long it takes for this thing to to recede.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I would say I think similarly, and or at least I try to think uh, more optimistically, <laughs> uh, like you do, uh, in, in terms of turning off devices, but also in terms of I, my prayer is that it kind of galvanizes people to want to gather again, which seems a little bit (laughs) like an oxymoron in a a time of social distancing. But, uh, you know, when all this kind of stuff goes back to, quote, normal, the idea of actually gathering with people in a church body as opposed to having or being comfortable with the convenience of online church, uh, that's kind of what I'm hoping it, it does, which is in the similar vein, just, you know, getting out of the digital space and into the real space, and um seeing the value of that and the importance of it um well in in light of that what would you say is or what's kind of keeping you busy during this time if that well that might be a little question, or what's one thing that's entertaining you uh when you w- while you guys are in quarantine right now <laughs> uh yeah we're um it, it,
1: we're trying we're trying to get out as much as possible and uh I, I don't think I really appreciated just how therapeutic just walking outside can be. And, and you know, <laughs> yeah. you get outside for, uh, you know, for just a few minutes. It's amazing what it can do to your spirits. And I've, it's been amazing to see what it can do in your kids as well. I have a, I have a 3-year-old and a 1-year-old and and the 1-year-old of course uh she's she's getting by uh but I can just tell you know a few days of cold weather where we can't really get outside the the 3-year-old is really really frustrated and things are hard and and kind of grumpy and uh, and then we're just able to go outside just for you know maybe t- even 20 30 minutes and it's uh it's a different ball game and and so like I you know it, it being outside is is a is a big part of how we're kind of coping with this and uh um I've actually I've recently on the blog I I posted something to let readers know that I was going to be uh stepping back from kind of regular blogging grind and uh I've I've kind of entered a season where I'm really wanting to focus more on um uh, kind of longer pieces and uh, wanting to to back away from the the just kind of constant m- content type of of approach to writing. So uh, I've been doing a lot of doing a lot of reading, uh, doing a lot of uh, uh, kind of sketching out in notebooks and everything like that of, of what I'd like to what I'd like to write about in the future. And uh, uh, my wife and I have been reading together on, on my Kindle, we have, uh, access to library books, you know, th- through the, through the ebook. And, uh, that's been, that's been fun. And of course, you know, we're all, we're, we're watching Disney plus, uh, more than, more than, more than we probably should. Uh, yes, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of Paw Patrol, a lot of, uh, Disney movies and, uh, um, you know, just getting, getting through it one day at a time, but, uh, it's, it's, it's sweet to, it's sweet to be, be near the kids and be near my wife and, and have that, have this uh, special season. I'm just praying I don't waste it.
0: Yes, oh, same with me uh, not wasting the solitude as you said that we are able to have kind of almost forced to have but now we're kind of graced with it as well um, but uh, Sam I really appreciate this time that we've been able to spend together I really appreciate your perspective and your insights and uh, I look forward to uh, staying connected with you in the future and uh, staying up to date with all your writings whenever you come out with those long forms I'm a huge fan of long form so uh, I will champion in your corner there. Um, I love that kind of stuff. So, um, But anyways, I really appreciate all that and um, uh, just stay blessed and thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks, Brad, so much. Very kind invitation. Really appreciate it.
0: Well, that's it for today's uh, episode of Min- of the Ministry-Minded Podcast. Uh, thanks so much for listening. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you're feeling gracious, you can leave me a review. The five-star ones are greatly appreciated. Thanks again to Sam for coming on, and thank you, as always, for listening, commenting, and subscribing. I'll see you on the next episode. Blessings. Blessings. oh, 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 oh